There's a uh, Valentine's episode of This American Life I was listening to recently where Ira Glass interviews a man named Kurt. And Kurt says he met his girlfriend on their third day of college and they dated for 13 years. He says he felt like they had a, a great relationship. They never fought. They had great conversations. They liked to travel together. They lived together. They slept together. But they never got married. And so about the time they turned 30, uh, Kurt asked his girlfriend, well, why do you think we've never gotten married? And she looked at him and she thought about it for a second. And then she said, well, before we get married, I think we should sleep with other people. And Kurt said, you know, you, you would have thought that would have shocked him, but he said it actually made sense to him. This is what he said. We both had this kind of arrogant notion of our relationship that it could survive literally anything. That we had been together, we had known each other our whole adult lives, we were each other's worlds. So really, I don't think we thought that we could destroy this thing. Uh, the girlfriend said that she had become fearful that she had missed out on something in her 20s and she didn't want to regret that for the rest of her life. And so what they decided was, was that for 30 days, they would both sleep with as, with as many people as they possibly could over the, the course of 30 days. And then they would get back together and they would get married. All right? Now, that's, that's very American, very modern. I think it says a lot about where we are as a culture in terms of the way we think about sex and marriage and covenants. And what we're going to think about this morning is, is how does the Bible look at that? How does the Bible say about marriage and sex and covenants. And we're going to be getting at this through several texts. Uh, the first is from Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to follow along with me in your bulletin, this is God's word. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. From Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. And from Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Pray with me. Father, thank you um, for the gifts you have given us in marriage and in sex and in this one flesh union that a husband and wife are to have. Uh, we confess that there is uh, much that, that pushes back against that in our culture and in our own flesh. Uh, I pray that you give us ears to hear uh, what your word says about these subjects today um, and hearts that would believe them uh, and embrace the good news of the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to talk, talk about marriage, we're going to talk about sex, we're going to talk about covenants, we're going to talk about sin, and we're going to talk about Jesus. And that's a lot to try to cover in one message, so just kind of fair warning, there will be unanswered questions. Have fun in your community groups uh, with kind of the things that are left hanging. But we're talking about marriage first, and, and I want to lead it into it with this. Uh, in, in 1939, Superman made his first appearance in the 27th issue of DC Comics. Uh, five or six years ago, that comic book sold for one and a half million dollars. Now, I want you to imagine if your grandfather had gone to the corner drugstore and paid five or ten cents for that particular comic book, and he had read it, and then he had he had stuck it in a shoebox under his bed and left it there. And it, it, was, it was fine. It was in good condition. And then several years later, you're cleaning out your grandfather's house and you find that comic book there. And you have no idea what it's worth. And you, you thumb through it and you're like, ah, Superman. And then you hand it to your five-year-old child and they take crayons and they begin to color all over this comic book. All right? If you had only known what the comic book was worth, right? You, you might have treasured it more. You might have tried to protect it. You, you, would, you would have handled it with care because you knew how valuable it was. I think that often we don't realize how valuable a thing we have in marriage. We don't realize what a gift God has given us in marriage because I think if we realize the gift that he has given us, we would be more likely to value it, to protect it, to see things that are perhaps temptations to us, to see those as actually threats to this very good gift that God has given us. And I say all that to say this, I think for the seventh commandment to make sense to us, we have to actually see what a good thing God has given us in marriage. And so that's what we're going to start by talking about this. What exactly is marriage? The Genesis text tells us that God, uh, in marriage, that God tells a man to, to leave his father and mother and to cleave unto, uh, to be united to, to hold fast to his wife. That's covenant language. Marriage is a covenant relationship which brings about a one flesh union between a man and a woman. And so a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, when they get married, they become one you know, in, in multiple ways. Uh, you share a bedroom, you share a bathroom, uh, you share a home, uh, you share insurance policies. Uh, in, in the old days, you know, before we had cell phones, 
you both had like separate answering machines in your different homes and you got together. Now you have one answering machine. It says, no longer says, hey, this is Justin. It's like, hey, this is Justin and Susan. It's the Kendricks. We're not just isolated individuals anymore. We are formed into to one union. So what's the purpose of that then? Why does God take the two and then make them one? Uh, one reason is for companionship. We read in the, in the Genesis text that as God creates things, over and over he stops and says, and that was good. And then God makes something else and he says, and that was good. And then he makes something else and says, and that was good. But then when God creates Adam, he says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And so God creates Eve and brings her to Adam. And Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall, be called, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that's, that's, that's Hebrew poetry. And it's something like Adam saying, heck yeah. Um, Adam saying, yeah, you're not me, but, but you're me. We, we fit together. We were made for each other. Because you and I are actually made in the image of a triune God who has existed forever in relationship. He has actually created us as relational beings. And God has designed men and women for physical, emotional, and spiritual oneness within the context of a marriage covenant. Um, the goal is for you to know them, the other one, the other person, like no one else knows them. And for them to know you like no one else knows you. The goal is, is for this companionship, for this intimacy. To be able to see each other's warts and sins and blemishes and still to be able to say, I love you and I accept you. To actually experience true intimacy. To be able to be completely vulnerable with another person and yet at the same time, while you're completely vulnerable, to be completely safe. Brene Brown talks about how we all battle with feeling like we're never enough. Never smart enough. Never successful enough. Never attractive enough enough the goal is the goal for marriage is for you to have this one place where you can actually be enough where you can take off your mask where you can let down your hair where you can quit performing for everybody and still have another person say that you are enough even on your worst days you're enough uh, one person put it this way they said after a decade of marriage if things go well you don't need any more proof that they love you. What you have instead, and what I would argue is the most deeply romantic thing of all, is this palpable, reassuring sense that it's okay to be a human being. And so marriage is designed for that. Marriage is designed for this intimate companionship. So just a couple of thoughts there. One, doesn't it make sense if you're dating uh, to date someone who is a friend uh, and, and to marry your very best friend? If you think about marriage in terms of companionship, it ought to rearrange the way we go about uh, selecting people to go out with. And we're not necessarily looking for the, the most attractive person in the world, but in, in the room, but we're looking for someone who we are compatible with and can develop a deep friendship with. Secondly, married people, it's very easy for marriage to fall into your role to be just being um, parents or just being business partners. And so you have to make a conscious effort to make sure you are, you're renewing the, the friendship part of your marriage. So companionship is one reason we have marriage. 
A second reason we have marriage is for holiness. Marriage is the God-given context for legitimate expression of sexual desires. Uh, But marriage also promotes holiness in a a big-picture way. So think about a wedding. You have a, a, a bride and a groom. They've exchanged vows. They've kissed. They're facing the crowd, and they're getting ready to walk down that aisle. Where are they going? Well, they're, going, they're going out the back door, they're going on their honeymoon, and they're going, they're going to their home. But ultimately, they're heading out on this journey that's going to end before the very throne of God. Like, that's their ultimate destination. That's the journey you're setting out on together. And your purpose as you walk on this journey is to help one another become holy, to help one another become beautiful. To help one another become the person that God has made you to be. To help one another prepare for that day when you will stand before the throne of God. And so, again, if you're dating, the question to ask yourself is, is your intention in this relationship with the other person to help them become the holy person that God intends them to be? What would it look like for you to date in that way, to help them pursue holiness? If you're married, I think you have to remember, yes, you're a sinner and your spouse is a sinner. But, but you're in this with them. And so when you, when you figure out that your spouse is a sinner, you're not to go kind of sit in the corner and be mad about that. Like, oh, I wish they were different. And they're doing the same thing. They're going to sit in the corner. Oh, I wish they were different. No, yeah, that's kind of what you're getting into. As, as one author titled his book about marriage, what did you expect? You know, when, when two sinners get married, you're in there together to help one another grow in holiness. God has placed you with that person so that you can be a part of their sanctification and so that they can be a part of your sanctification. So marriage is for companionship. Marriage is for holiness. Marriage is to produce godly offspring. Uh, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Children are seen in Scripture as a gift from the Lord. God doesn't give us a, a, a magic number and say, you must have this many children. But Scripture constantly views children as this blessing from God. And there's a fourth reason for marriage, and it's to be a picture of the gospel. Let me read from Ephesians 5. Um, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so within marriage, the way that you love your spouse, and in particular men, the way you love and serve and sacrifice for your bride is meant to be a picture of Christ and the way he loved and served and sacrificed himself for his bride, the church. 
And so husbands, in the way you love your wives, wives in the way that you submit to and respect your husbands, this is meant to be pointing people to Jesus. You are, are playing roles in a play, as it were, that's supposed to be painting a picture of the gospel to the world around you. And so the, the way that you fight and the way that you confess and the way that you repent and the way that you make up and love each other, that's all supposed to be pointing other people to Jesus Christ. And so, I know I'm going quick with this, but the, the, the purpose of marriage is this one flesh union that provides companionship, that promotes holiness, that produces godly offspring, and that ultimately paints this picture of the gospel. So that's, so that's marriage. Uh, I, I, let's talk about sex. How does that fit into this? Throughout history, some people have viewed sex as just this natural appetite to be indulged. Um, you know, if you're hungry, you eat, if you feel like having sex, you have sex, you just satisfy your appetite. Uh, other people have actually seen it as degrading and dirty and just this necessary evil that we have to put up with. Uh, today, it's, it's very often seen simply as a vehicle to personal fulfillment. So however you want to be personally fulfilled through sex, that's fine as long as you're not hurting anybody else. Uh, what's the, the purpose of sex, biblically speaking? Uh, a few things. Uh, in the Bible, sex is about procreation. Uh, it's, it's how we multiply and fear, fill the earth. It's how we produce godly offspring. Uh, secondly, sex in the Bible is about recreation. Sex is about a, a husband and wife enjoying one another physically, delighting in each other's bodies, giving one another pleasure. Uh, I've, I've said before that if I were to stand up here and, and read through the Song of Solomon and like explain what all of that means to you, it's, it's very erotic love poetry, and we would all be very uncomfortable. It would be, it would be very awkward for us. But it's a picture of a husband and wife enjoying one another physically. Sex is actually celebrated uh, within the scripture when it's between a husband and a wife. Uh, thirdly, sex within marriage is a means to protect the husband and wife. So that it gives them a place where sexual desires can be legitimately met. Which is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7 do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so sex is meant to be a protection for the husband and wife. And fourthly, sex is about communicating and fostering oneness and intimacy within marriage. It's about knowing and being known that that physical oneness in some ways is kind of the culmination of all the other onenesses that are a part of a marriage relationship but here's the thing that physical oneness is not meant to be divorced from all the other onenesses that are part of marriage uh, here, here's how tim keller put it in the meaning of marriage sex is understood both as a sign of that personal legal union and a means to accomplish it the Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you are also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way. Which is what Paul I think is getting at in the 1 Corinthians 6 passage that we read. Sex is supposed to be a way of, of consummating that one sex union between a husband and 
and a wife, and that includes oneness in every way. And so then it makes no sense to give your body to someone that you haven't also committed your life to. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that sex without marriage is like tasting food without swallowing and digesting it. Kind of interesting analogy. And so again, sex is meant to be the, the culmination of marriage, of the oneness that a husband and a wife are meant to experience within marriage. It's a way to say to another person, I belong completely and solely to you. I'm giving myself to you and to no one else. And here's what happens when you have sex outside of the context of marriage. Um, you begin, like if you have premarital sex, you will begin to start feeling attached emotionally to the person you're having sex with because that's the way sex is designed to work. Uh, in that This American Life episode, Kurt kept getting attached to all the people he was sleeping with. Like he couldn't, he couldn't just shut off that emotional attachment. And what happens is the more you do that, the more you try to divorce the two, you begin to force yourself to, to shut down that emotional attachment. So then it becomes just about the sex. And what happens over time is that you begin to actually damage sex and you begin to lose the ability to say to another person, I belong completely and solely to you. Because you've actually, you've actually hampered this great gift or damaged this great gift that God has given you. And all of this is to, to point us to why we need a marriage covenant. Right? It shows us why we need a marriage covenant. Why do I need a piece of paper to you know, say that I love you? Here's why. What, a covenant. When, when you enter into marriage, you're entering into a covenant relationship and not a consumer relationship. All right, I know I've, I've used this relationship, this illustration before. You have a consumer relationship with the places you shop. If you've been buying your milk at Publix and it's three fifty a gallon, and you walk into Aldi one day and you like, oh my goodness, it's a dollar and six cents for milk in here. Like, I'm keep waiting for the day when they pay me to take the milk at Aldi. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. But you have a you have a consumer relationship with Publix. And so that's totally fine for you to break that relationship. I got a better price. I got a better offer somewhere else. I'm going to go over here and, and spend my money at Aldi now. And what's happened in our very consumer society is we've begun to view marriage as actually a consumer relationship instead of a covenant relationship. So that it's about me and it's about my happiness. And if I begin to become dissatisfied with a product I have, it's okay for me to shop around. And if I see a more attractive product somewhere else, then it's okay for me to purchase that product or to trade in the product I have and leave for a better one. We view marriage as a consumer relationship. God views marriage as a covenant relationship. It's a binding, public, legal agreement. It's not something that you do just like out in the backyard, just the two of you. You don't take your marriage vows just between the two of you. You enter into a marriage covenant in public because the witnesses there are actually witnessing this exchanging of vows. And they are, they are saying, we're going to hold you accountable for, for keeping this covenant. We're going to help you to keep this covenant that you have made. And so the promises you make in a marriage ceremony are not primarily about how that other person makes you feel. And they're not primarily about how much you love them now. It's you promising over the long term to be loving and to be faithful to this other person. Yes, I love you now, and I'm going to love you and be faithful to you in five years, and in 10 years, and in 20 years, and in 50 years. You're making a promise 
to do that. Uh, there was a celebrity couple in the news recently, and I don't remember who it was. You may have seen them. But the wife has developed Alzheimer's, and the husband has started dating somebody else, and he's actually bringing the woman he's dating into the house. Okay? And the wife meets her, and I don't think she has no idea what's going on. And he, he's still taking care of his wife, but he's dating and having a relationship with this other woman. And so I was in the gym the other day, and up on the monitors, one of the talk shows was going, and, and I saw across the bottom of the screen it says their topic was, is it okay to leave your spouse if they become physically ill or, or, or something along those lines? Like if, like if it gets hard, basically what they're saying, if it gets hard and you no longer getting satisfaction out of this relationship, is it then okay for you to leave? That's a consumer view of the marriage relationship. In the Bible, when you take marriage vows, you're not entering into a consumer relationship. You're entering into a covenant and you're promising to be loving and to be faithful to this other person. And, and I'd argue that that actually demonstrates true love. Like if you say uh, to another person, I love you, but I don't need to be married to you in order to prove that to you. What you're saying is, I'm actually selfish. And I'm not willing to curtail my freedom in order to love you. When you take marriage vows, you're actually creating a safe space where you can quit marketing yourself. Quit selling yourself. Where you can actually be honest and let them see the real you. Why? How are you able to do that? Because they've taken vows that they're going to stick with you no matter what they see. They've made a promise to be loving and to be faithful. When you take marriage vows, you're protecting yourself from the ebbs and flows of the feelings that come and go over a course over the course of a marriage. You're saying, I don't, I don't feel very in love right now, but I, I made a vow to be loving and to be faithful, and so we're going to continue along this path. When you take marriage vows, you're creating a space where love uh, and trust and commitment can flourish, where you can actually learn what it means to love another person. Because in the Bible, love's not just a feeling, it's an action. Where you, you get into the grind, you're like, okay, this is what loving someone as, as a verb looks like. When you take marriage vows, uh, you create a space where you can understand the gospel better. When your spouse who loves you is hurt by your sin and yet says, I'm going to absorb the cost of your sin and forgive you. You can better then understand a God who is hurt by your sin and yet looks at you and says, I'm going to absorb the cost of your sin and forgive you. And so the covenant creates this safe space, as it were, for marriage and sexuality to actually flourish and to be what God intended for them to be. Um, back to our guy, Kurt, who's, who's talking to Ira Glass. Kurt said that as a result of this experiment that they did, and, 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 and by the way, after a month, they decided they needed to go another month. And then after another month, they decided they needed to do the experiment for another month. And then they broke up. Okay, And so... Kurt says, here's what I've decided. If, if I get married, then I think you should be seven, married seven years, and then the marriage automatically dissolves, and you have to decide whether you want to get married again. And Ira Glass says, well, why do you want to do that? And, and Kurt says, well, I think if you have to choose again, it will actually make the relationship stronger. 
And, and listen to what Ira Glass said, who, who, I, who I believe is an atheist, but this is what Ira Glass said. I don't know what I think of that because I think actually one of the things that's a comfort in marriage is that there isn't a door at seven years. And so if something is messed up in the short term, there's a comfort of knowing like, well, we've made this commitment. And so we're just going to work this out. Like even if tonight we're not getting along or there's something between us that doesn't feel right, you have the comfort of knowing we've got time. We're going to figure this out. And that makes it so much easier because you do go through times when you hate each other's guts. You know what I mean? And, and, and Kurt says, of course I do. Yeah, and Ira Glass says, and the no escape clause, weirdly, is a bigger comfort to being married than I ever would have thought before I got married. Okay? Not a believer. But that's, that's profound biblical insight. The no escape clause is a bigger comfort to being ma- married than I ever would have thought. Okay? So we talked about marriage. talked about sex. Talked about covenants and, and how they're needed and how they help to protect a marriage. What does that have to do with the seventh commandment? What does it have to do with the seventh commandment? Adultery is a breaking of the marriage covenant. Now, if you interpret that narrowly, that means having sex with someone who isn't your spouse. But this, the, the Bible applies this commandment very broadly. Uh, it teaches us that any kind of sexual contact outside of sex between a married husband and wife is actually sexual immorality. And so what the Bible would consider to be sexual immorality would be premarital sex, extramarital sex, prostitution, incest, pedophilia, rape, homosexuality. You go down the list, anything outside of sex between a husband and wife is considered sexual immorality in Scripture. And I'll say this, this isn't a sermon about homosexuality, uh, but I know that that goes against the grain of where our culture is for me to say that that's actually immoral. In fact, there are plenty of people who would say that I'm immoral for making that statement. But y'all, in the Bible, it's not remotely unclear. Like, it is very clear that this is a sin, and this goes against the, God, the way God created us to live. Uh, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And so Christians have to say, yes, we believe this is a sin, but at the same time, we have to love and care for people who are gay, who are lesbian, who are dealing with whatever um, sexual issue, who are broken in whatever way sexually. And we have to do that because we know that we're sexually broken people. It may not be in exactly the same way, but we are also sexually broken people who have been redeemed by Jesus. And so we have to say, yes, I disagree with you, and I think that's wrong. But I'm broken in my own ways. And, and here is this Jesus who brings redemption to sexually broken people. In any event, any sexual act outside of sex between a married husband and wife in the Bible is considered to be sin. But Jesus goes further. Right? We, we read this passage from the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, it's not just about your acts, it's not just about your words, it's actually about your hearts. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's the lingering looks, and the sexual fantasies, and the online porn, and the romance novels, and and all these sorts of things. Jesus says, it's not just about the deed, it's about what is actually going on inside of you, in your heart, 
and in your mind. And so God has said to us, look, I'm, I'm giving you these amazing gifts in sex and in marriage. But here's how I want you to use them. And if you use them in this way, you will experience blessing. And if you use this in other ways, you're going to break it. And you're going to break yourself. And you're going to break the people around. You're going to bring harm to other people. And so that's the law, right? That's what, that's what the Bible is saying to us. It's saying, live like this, not like this. If you live like this, it's going to produce brokenness. And yet we, we hear that. And we still want to push back against that. We see this line that God has drawn, and we kind of want to go, ah, I don't want the line to be right there. I, I think the line should be over here somewhere. There's, a, uh, there's an episode of Frasier. For those of you who remember Frasier, which is like one of the great comedies of all time. And Frasier is having this terrible day. Uh, somebody takes his parking space at the office. He goes to the movie, and somebody talks through the whole movie so he can't hear the movie. Then he goes home and the neighbor's blaring the stereo real loud and he goes to the coffee shop and he gets his coffee. He's been waiting for the seat to come open and the seat finally come o- comes open and he grabs the guy by the collar who took his seat and he runs him out of the coffee shop and he says, what you need is an etiquette lesson. And so for those of you who are not familiar with the show, Fraser's actually a psychiatrist and he has a radio show. And so he goes on his radio show and he tells his story and he's basically encouraging people Sometimes you just need to stand up for yourself, and people need to learn basic etiquette. And so people start taking this to heart, and they start calling in. And and one guy says, my neighbor was using his leaf blower at 7 a.m. in the morning, and so I went out and smashed his leaf blower against the tree. Or my neighbor did something, so I took a pound of rotten shrimp and stuffed them into his air conditioning. And there's like this this story after story, and Fraser is finally kind of like, you're going too far. And this is what he says. I displayed a minor bit of force just to make a point. I didn't go around smashing windows or torching lawns. Where does it end? And the, the caller says this. Are you saying that what I did was wrong? Of course I am. And then the caller responds. But what you did is okay? And Fraser has to stop and think about that for a minute. And then he says, come to think of it. What I did was just as wrong. I mean, who am I to draw the line at the acceptable level of force? Who am I to draw the line at the acceptable level of force? You might be listening to me this morning, and your thought is, Justin, who are you to draw the line at, at what's acceptable when it comes to marriage and sex? And I can say the same thing back to you. Who are you to draw the line at what's acceptable when it comes to marriage and to sex because neither of us have the right to draw that line but God does and God claims the right to draw that line and Jesus comes and he claims the right to draw that line and he draws that line right in our hearts and he says if you ignore this line that I have drawn it is going to break you at the end of the day Uh, I, I heard someone say recently that if if I read this recently. They said if people would just obey what the Bible said about sex, uh, if if we would pay attention to the line Jesus has drawn, this is what it would be like. It said this, there would be no sexually transmitted diseases, no abortions, no brokenness from divorce. Every child would have a mother and a father and experience the love and acceptance each parent uniquely offers. There would be no rape, no sex abuse, no sex trafficking, no pornography, 
and no need for a Me Too campaign. Think of the healing and wholeness if people simply lived Jesus' life-giving words regarding human sexuality. And we hear that and we all go say, yeah. Like, would it be so much better if we just, like, listened to Jesus and did what he says on this? And so we ought to try to protect these gifts that God has given us. But the truth of the matter is that we've all said, I don't really like the line you've drawn, Jesus. Like, I, I might say that I like the line in church, but then when I leave, I'm not so sure I like the line that you've drawn. I don't like your prescription for how I'm going to find intimacy. I'm going to draw my own line. I'm going to find intimacy on my own terms. I'm going to chase what I want to chase. I'm going to seek satisfaction where I want to seek satisfaction. And so the result of that is there are sexually transmitted diseases. And there are abortions. And there is brokenness from divorce. And every child doesn't have a mother and father in their home. And there is rape, and there is sex abuse, and there is sex trafficking, and there is pornography, and there is a need for a Me Too, for the Me Too campaign. Because we've all crossed lines. We've all drawn our own lines in our hearts, in our words, in our actions. And there are some of us, perhaps many of us, who have been the victims of other people crossing those lines. And so either in the ways we've sinned or in the ways we've been sinned against, we are sexually broken people, which is why the gospel is such good news. Uh, we're going to read this for the assurance of pardon in a second, but I want to read it now. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're, we're all sexually broken. And we're affected by the sexual brokenness of the people around us. But Jesus comes to atone for our guilt and to remove our shame and to restore our joy and to bring life to us again. And I, I'd love to talk to you about how Jesus does that. Matt would love to talk to you about how Jesus can do that. Coleman would love to talk to you about how Jesus can do that. But let me close with this. Let's, I want to get back to our, our comic book story. Uh, imagine your grandfather hadn't taken such good care of that comic book. And he rolled it up, and he stuck it in his back pocket, and he got on his bike, and he rode down to his favorite fishing hole, and he bought worms, bought some wigglers, and he pulled them out and put them on. And if those of you who have been fishing and use like earthworms to fish, you know how sticky and gooky, and you get worm juice all over you, and it's just kind of gross. And he like wipes that on the comic book, and then he sticks it in his back pocket, and he goes back home, and he just throws it under the bed, and it gets collected with dirty socks and whatever for years. And then you find it, and you're thumbing through this nasty old book, and you accidentally rip a page out of it. And you hand it to your five-year-old, and they, they color it, and you take it from them, and you use it to line the cat's litter box. Is there any hope of that comic book ever retaining its value? 
Is there any hope of it ever being restored to mint condition again? Is there any hope of anybody wanting that comic book again? In man's economy, no. But in God's gospel economy, absolutely yes. See, that that comic book is me, it's you, it's us and our broken sexuality. And the gospel says that there is hope for us in the midst of all of our brokenness. The gospel says that even in our brokenness, Jesus has come for us, that Jesus has treasured us. He has treasured us right where you are. He has treasured us and died for us. And that when we turn to him and embrace what he has done at the cross... That he declares us legally righteous. He says, like, I see your brokenness, but I'm declaring you righteous. And I see that you feel estranged and apart from everybody, but I'm bringing you into my family. And I see that you feel filth and shame, and I'm bringing you in, and I'm going to make you clean. The gospel says he has made us clean legally. He is making us clean in actuality. And one day we will be completely and totally clean forever. Jesus delights to take broken people, people who are sexually broken, and make them clean and make them whole and make them beautiful again. And he can do that for you. Let me pray for us. Father, um, one of the one of the first steps to healing this in this area I know is to, to come out of hiding and, and come into the light. So I, um, I pray this morning that there's perhaps someone who is struggling in some way and they've kept that all to themselves because of shame or guilt or whatever, that they'd be able to speak that and to own that, that they'd be able to sit down with a friend or a pastor or, or someone that they can confess sin to. And that, Father, if, if we were on the receiving end of that confession, that we would be able to speak gospel grace goodness that we would be able to point one another to Jesus for certainly we all need him help us in this help us to be honest about our brokenness um, so that we can honestly receive your healing I pray in Christ's name amen